You're listening to Drinking Socially, the official Untapped podcast, your weekly look into what's happening in the Untapped community and the world of beer. I'm Kyle. And I'm Tim. Drinking Socially is released every Wednesday morning and can be found at podcast.untapped.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. And I've actually spent the first 20 minutes of this podcast recording session trying to figure out what that weird wiggle is in my hotel room as I am back in uh, our HQ East, I suppose, out in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, visiting for the week. We're busy hoping your hotel does not fall down any minute now. <laughs> yeah, it, it just had this really strange, weird vibration going on. And uh, I want to bring maybe it's just trying to bring that energy. You know, it's trying to like get get me psyched up, get me hyped yeah. on, uh, on on doing this podcast. So <laughs> we're here um, and I think it's time for us to get something to drink. What do we have this week? Uh, this week we have two separate beers. Um, oddly enough though, without any coordination, they're in the same vein here, which I thought was quite entertaining. Uh, up first, I will go with mine. I have Saucin, which is coming from Arrow Lodge Brewing. They're down in Covina, California. Yeah. This is a sour Berliner Weiss. It's 4.5%. And they describe it as a tart wheat ale with cranberry and caracara orange zest. That sounds pretty good. Orange zest can be kind of uh, divisive for for me. It can either smell and taste like pledge, or it can be like a wonderful, you know, uh, fresh California slash Florida orange. This is true. And thanks to um, I didn't know what a caracara orange was. In fact, I didn't know how many varieties of oranges there were until I got the imperfect produce box, <laughs> and I started going through the list of like, oh, oranges. Wait, there's navel. There's Caracara, there's Mandarin, there's this, there's that. And I had no idea how many there were. But so the Caracara orange, it's from what I gathered from at least the ones that I got compared to like, say, a navel orange, they're much bigger and much sweeter than your average orange. So I'm not sure if that translates out to the zest, but it is definitely different than, say, your basic citrusy orange. It To me, visually, it's got like almost this uh, in between a blood orange and a grapefruit almost. Yeah. That's true. It, it's a little, it's less orange and a little more of that like pinkish hue, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's also known as the power orange, which I'm all for that. That's the, that's the marketing name. Um, bringing the power, Tim, bring, bringing it. I, I brought the pink drink. Uh, it's a tart wheat ale brewed with lemongrass and raspberries. This Ooh. is from Highwire Brewing Company. And again, like you said, uh, without any coordination, just, you know, same brain, tart wheat ale. I got I got one just just like that. Um, I'm excited mainly because lemongrass is not a an ingredient in beers I see very often, but I love like lemongrass soup and lemongrass flavors. Mm, okay. um, and I I just I like just sort of like that sharp lemony flavor, uh, but it it tastes fresh. It doesn't taste talking about oranges. It doesn't taste like pithy, you know. So. Let's crack both of these open and uh, give them a taste. Now, I like the uh, the opposites we have going on with the labels. I've got the black with the red, and okay, that's just plain up, just some type on there. Nice pink yeah, gradient. Yeah, well, and they actually had to put on here like contains alcohol, but it because it's so close to uh, like a it looks like a soda basically. Like you'd grab a soda or an energy drink off the shelf. And it it's definitely an alcoholic beverage clocking in at 4.2% ABV. All right. Now the question is, how pink is yours? Because I'm looking at basically straight up like raspberry pink over here. 
Granted, I don't know if you have any glassware, so you might just be going straight to the can. Uh, I do. I have ye, ye olde, uh glassware of of the uh, compostable of the coffee cup. Com, com, yeah, compostable <laughs> glassware. Just trying to be sustainable, Tim. Listen, <laughs> so it's it's actually a lot lighter than than the one that you've got. Um, it is more on the pink side, less on the. Uh, this is definitely more like light cranberry, right? I w- I would say mine's more like a rosé. Uh, it, which is a pretty hot style at the moment, uh, whether it be, you know, like like the rosé ciders we were talking about last time or a straight up rosé IPA from the folks over at uh, Modern Times or, you know, the rosé style is is real hot right now. And it's got kind of that hue going. Um, the head on it is either super, super light pink or mostly white. Stark contrast to, to sort of the like highlighter pink color that i'm getting from it Mm, i like this one this is delicious smelling that's for sure i love i mean i love the smell of a sour beer just that kind of like tart and and uh weedy a a little bit like you can definitely tell the difference between a sour like an american sour something that's a little more pungent uh versus your sour wheat ale like a tart wheat ale and this is this is more my speed, more kind of like a, a nice fruited, light, easy drinking beer. Um, so I'm I'm excited. So right off the bat, I definitely get the citrus and like a light orange sort of um, aroma going on. Um, I think the cranberry is definitely popping the most, but it's it's fairly subtle. It's not it's not overwhelming. It's not um, like a you know a giant fruit bomb. Um, and as far as the taste goes, it's. Super light, super refreshing, very smooth. I'm gonna have to say the same same for mine. I mean, it's ours are probably very similar in in taste. I get that feeling, yeah. Um, it's not all that sweet. It, it's got a slight sweetness to it, uh, but like you said, not overly fruited. It doesn't taste like a soda, really. I mean, it's it's still got that nice beer backbone to it mm-hmm. uh, that is just frighteningly crushable right now and this is going down super smooth i am enjoying it a lot definitely i i agree with everything you said there it's um it's fairly light um it's very refreshing the kind of like cranberry holiday like flavors that they have going on they're very subtle and upfront and then it fades to a very light sour um and then after that you kind of just get that what you'd expect for like your standard light beery aftertaste Mm-hmm. And not not in any sort of like negative. I'm drinking light beer sort of way, but just in like very smooth, very subtle. What you'd expect to have after, say, like a sip of a, a some sort of like a tart wheat beer. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, um, which I think is very cool and was very surprising. So earlier today, um, on our Untapped social accounts, we posted the top ten styles, most checked in styles of 2018. And I think people were mostly surprised by the fact that sour ale was number five on the list for last year yeah i mean sour ales do feel a little bit in the craft beer scene they feel like they've kind of come and gone right they're they're obviously not totally out there and um you know completely gone from the the craft beer scene in in general but what i think has happened more is that you start to get these um you start to get these experts in sour beers and experimentations in sour beers where good beer i think is is always my go-to example but um i'll try and give another one up in berkeley uh there's the rare barrel yes and the rare the rare barrel 
was liter- a literal rare rarity uh, for me to be able to get. But uh, they now have some distribution through Tavor, uh, our friends over at Tavor, which is pretty cool. Uh, and so now more and more folks are able to try these very, very highly coveted sours. And um, they end up being, you know, one of the highest rated categories, at least for me, uh, looking at my year in beer. And I would not be surprised if that extends throughout the entire Untapped community. Um, we've there are just so many different ways that you can create a sour beer. And I know that's the case for pretty much every other style as well. But throw any fruit at this. And you'll you'll be able to get a fantastic tasting beer. Throw any almost any culinary ingredient, honestly. And <laughs> this is that, true. that that is not just like a purely savory uh and or like meat or something in there. And you'll you're gonna get a good beer. This is true. And I sour I think sours are finally starting to get a little more a little more accepted, I think is the word I want to look for. Um, with people, you know, people used to think, oh, sour beer is, uh, so gross. They're so sour and I want to just drink beer that has hops and I don't want, I don't want to drink something that is a sour candy or whatever. Yeah. A, a lot more of the like larger craft breweries started creating m- beers that they started to put out more in higher distribution. Well, and, or, or kind of like gateway beers too. I think when, when you first tried sours back in, 2015 uh when they were super hot and up and coming right before sort of the the haze days and it was you could get put off them super fast so now i think that's a little bit different right either the the style the american sour style or even like these fruited berliners are becoming something that can be a gateway to other sours and try and like get you back into uh you know trying more and more sort of pushing the boundary level sours yeah i can i I, yes i can see that as well i think one good example is uh the sequential from dogfish head it's a it's a goza and it's that whole like um what was it black limes and sea salt yeah um then they mean they market it as being a very light beer something that you can drink and not put on calories but it, it is essentially you know a goza which is in that sour family which is the sour salty thing and that can also be considered kind of like um you know a gateway i know uh, i've seen victory's um sour monkey at several shops um that are you know a little more um, widely distributed i I just Mm -hmm. i think there's a bunch of um so a bunch of these places are starting to put out things that are just um you know, not like full on pucker bombs, but something that's just lightly, refreshingly sour that just kind of leads you to understanding it a bit more. And also there's there's potential that people are just kind of starting to shift that direction because they're getting uh, as much as we don't think it's possible. They're just getting hopped out. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, we've we've made it a point on this show, like trying other styles, making sure that you are are experiencing beer to its fullest is really kind of the intent um in in craft beer right and which is why craft brewers tend to try a whole bunch of different styles it's a mashup of a goza and a berliner and uh you know a a kolsch so like you know go try this one maybe it's something that you'll like there's just so many different unlimited possibilities that like trying to limit yourself just to that's that's all I like. Like that's the only thing I drink is is kind of disingenuous to to the intent I think of craft beer. But you know what? Do do what you want. 
You know, drink <laughs> what you want, drink what you like, do what makes you happy, chase your bliss, right? I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you to try something if you don't want to try it, but, but encouragement is kind of all, all that we can ask for. Well, yeah, and you, you never know, you never know what you will and won't like until you try it. Um, and I mean that goes for just about everything in life, but you know, um. It's a it's a style of beer that it took me a little bit of time to get into and to really like. And I would definitely put it in my top five styles very high up in that list because mm -hmm. I, I always I again, I feel like we've talked about this on sours before, but I always enjoyed sour candy or sour, sour lemonade or things like that. And so it just is really an incarnation of that for me um, in the beer world. And to the fact that, especially with the Berliner Weiss, but with most of the sours, the fact that you can experiment so much with them. You know, you can go from me with the cranberry and the caracara zest to you with the lemongrass. And um, what was the other piece? Raspberries. And raspberries. I mean, look at look at the uh, the fruit series that uh, I think it's uh, was McKellar doing it with their their Berliner Weiss, the Ichben Ein Berliner. Yes, they're like. <laughs> If you would like their single fruited series. Yeah, exactly. And look at all the fruits they put into that. There are so many different variants of that. It's it's a very flexible style and something that you can really um, mess around with and kind of morph into something that you would enjoy. Have any of you had either of these beers? You should definitely let us know what you thought on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram by tagging us at Untapped. Or as some people have been doing, just uh, let us know what you're drinking. Give us a shout out on there or feel free to tag us on Untapped. Uh, I am at Teme and Kyle, you are at Kyle Roderick. And uh, some people have been tagging us in their check-ins while listening to the show. And it's super cool to see. It's really fun. Um, I saw one this week uh, after we covered the Hefeweizen on the last episode, they were they were like, oh, I was inspired to try a, a Hef again. And they tagged us on the check-in, and it was super cool to see. So please um, feel free to do that because it's always fun to hear what you're drinking. But on the note of social, um, a couple of small changes that we are trying out here just to kind of give the show a little more um, ability to see what everybody's saying. So, you know, if you do tag us on some of our major untapped networks, it does become a little difficult to kind of weed through all the activity there and see what's going on. So we've actually set up some dedicated accounts for drinking socially the show here. Um, if you want to hit us up on Twitter, that's going to be uh, twitter.com slash untapped podcast. So we'll be there um, on Instagram. We are Instagram. Uh, we are drinking socially there. So we've got an account set up. So if you want to head over and either, you know, message us, tag us, um, we'll be, trying to feature some more fe um, photos there from behind the scenes or just, you know, fun things we got going on here at the podcast um, as opposed to the, you know, more curated untapped feed. Um, and then we also have a Facebook page set up, which is Drinking Socially. So you should be able to track that down just by looking for the page and searching for it on Facebook. Um, I'll be providing links to everything in the show notes. So be sure to check there. And one other quick thing too, is that we also recently set up a Facebook group for uh, listeners of the podcast. Uh, it, we've got about 150 members and growing, um, we haven't been as active in there, but we plan to kind of start jumping in and just, uh, chatting. We want to hear what you have to say about the episodes. We want to discuss, um, anything that you thought was interesting, uh, get your feedback, your ideas, your suggestions about beers or styles or anything like that. And it's just a, it's just a fun forum for listeners of the show to come together and share beer ideas, stories, feedback, things like that. So we definitely look forward to, uh, seeing you in there. I'll be sure to include a link to that as well. But again, if you just search for Drinking Socially on Facebook, you should be able to see our page and our group. And um, it is a request to join. So once you do, I will be sure to add everyone in there. 
we're definitely looking forward to all of you linking up with us and uh, talking to us and just being able to have a little more visibility on the listeners of the show so that we can be sure to gather your feedback and your suggestions. Let's move on to our Style of the Week segment and take a look at this week's Featured Beer Style. Here's Tim with more. No region is more known for its beer than Bavaria, I think it's safe to say. Ooh. There might be there might there might be some fighting words, but if we go historically back, I, I think we can all agree that the Bavarian region has a very deep, rich, long history and is extremely important in, you know, where where beers have come from. Bavaria right no e40 nothing but bavaria yay ye area no no it must be a regional thing it's a california thing okay uh e40 is a a rapper out of the bay area uh northern california he has a song called yay area um and so i every time i every time i hear bavaria i i i can't not like sing it in that tone so <laughs> that's a nice that's an interesting little shout out there uh, but also, I, I did find out that there is uh, the, the connection here. There is a Bavaria E40, uh, a top speed boat, uh, which which is just a, it's a boat. It's a twenty. It's a twenty eighteen boat, and it's we're a, getting it's really like, it's, getting really weird here. It's like a yacht. Anyway, so we're talking about beer, Tim um, from what, Bavaria. That's right. All right. So with their summery Weiss beer and Pilsner, their autumnal Marzen and Box for winter and spring, Bavaria really, they have a brew for almost every season. But it's the golden lager known as Munich Helles that serves as the most popular and common beer, which is why this week we will dig into the history of the Helles style. Which I just learned how to pronounce. I was not sure uh, what, how, what I was supposed to say for that. Helles, Helles. But it, it is Hellas. Uh, according to the Washington Post, that is correct. Okay. All right. All right. And uh, before we get started, I do want to give a shout out to All About Beer for this fantastic um, article uh, that we will basically be citing and kind of running through here. Um, I'll include a link to the show notes if you want to get it word for word. Um, this is a bit of an edited version, but uh, for the most part, it was really, really insightful. So um, I just want to cite that here before we get too far into it. So in German, Helles means light, bright, or blonde, all of which really describe the style. Easily distinguishable from a Pilsner, the Helles has a muted hop character and soft, malty accent. It's barely a century old, and Helles is regarded by many as the absolute pinnacle of brewing science and art. But to fully understand the Helles, you need to kind of take a look at the history of brewing in Europe as a whole. Now, I know we've gone back in time in um, in European brewing many times, but uh, this one I really think kind of helps set the entire tone for how we got to this style. Yeah, and I, I barely know anything about it, so. Brewing truly seems to be the divine destiny of Central and Northern Europe, given the temperate conditions, fertile land, and the technological proclivity of all of the people there. Uh, cultivated grain and agriculture came to Europe from the Fertile Crescent, which is a crescent-shaped region in the Middle East where agriculture and early human civilizations really flourished. Uh, trade and military roads built by the Roman Empire crisscrossed Europe, and the routes remained as crucial commercial arteries post-Roman Empire. Now, Munich uh, was founded as a monastic settlement, and as in much of Europe during the end of the first millennium, these monks were the preeminent brewers of the era. 
as we've you know discussed many times, it really was um, monks that did a lot of the brewing at the um, in the early centuries. Uh, just because that's that's kind of like one of the duties that was given to them. Their dedication, meticulousness, and focus were second to none. It was monks in the Hallertau region of Bavaria near Munich that actually first cultivated hops in the 8th century AD. And without them, oh boy, where would we be? We wouldn't be drinking those IPAs. That's, that's, what, we, that's what we wouldn't be doing. That's for sure. Soon after, brewing became more secularized, followed by inevitable competition and eventually commercial, political, and aristocratic friction and distrust. Um, Guilds were formed to protect product quality and brewing rights, and a number of localities enacted laws to regulate the ingredients of beer. Now, you can kind of guess where this is leading to. These were actually the forerunners of the Rheinheiskabat Purity Law of 1516 and established the Bavarian tradition of brewing exclusively all-malt beer. About this time, bottom fermentation was emerging as a means to ensure proper beer quality, and the cool climate of the Alpen foothills offered conditions that favored slow, steady fermentation. Also, serendipitously, the nearby cool caverns were perfect to store an aged, finished beer. Love that cave-aged beer. Definitely. Now, during the 18th century, pale malt was being made in England via the old methods of direct kilning. Um, Lighter than the coarser brown malt favored for porters and stouts, it was used in the production of pale ales. And then by the early 19th century, malting really saw great improvement, making pale malt less expensive, cleaner tasting, and even lighter in color. English pale ales caught the eye of two prominent European brewers from the mainland, uh, Gabriel Settlemeyer of Spaten in Munich and Anton Dreher of the Dreher Brewery in Vienna. Now, we've discussed these two actually in two separate episodes. One was relating to the Marzen and one was relating to the Vienna Lager, which is two separate beers that each of them are very much known for. But as a quick refresher, they took a year-long trip around England in 1833 to learn about malting and the pale malts and the methods of English brewers and the whole brewing of pale ales. Mm -hmm. Uh, there may have been some stealing of malts or yeast. Um, <laughs> Bringing those back. Yeah. And basically yep. just figuring out how European breweries were working and taking it back to their respective areas of Munich and Vienna and kind of harnessing those um, brewing styles uh, in their own things. So Sadelmeyer's first pale beer was a bottom fermented Marzen introduced to the public at the Munich Oktoberfest in 1841. Uh, it was made with the, his newly developed Amber Munich malt, which was decidedly paler than that made for Dunkels and Box. Dreyer's new brew, made with his Vienna malt, was offered to the public mere months later and was even lighter than the than the uh, Marzen, and that was basically the Vienna lager. So we've got those two. But meanwhile, Bavarian transplant Joseph Grohl was busy making golden malt and even paler brew in Pilsen, Bohemia. This golden lager known as Pilsner essentially changed brewing history. Brewers scrambled to compete with the new beer from Bohemia. And after years of tinkering, Settlemeyer's sons, who eventually took over the brewery, they finally made a malt that they were really desiring for brewing, uh, which resulted in the test introduction of the new Munich Hellas in 1894. So you can see how all of that kind of comes together. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to to see like it, it's easy to follow kind of the innovations that happened and how one thing led to another. And just you, you kind of end up going lighter and paler and paler and paler until things get just so, so light and pale that you end up with this like very clean and classic Bohemian Pilsner style. 
Well, and it's also interesting to kind of see how even today um, brewers are kind of competing with each other to to make different styles and to to create things that other breweries are making and tweak them so that they have more claim. Um, and we're seeing that now with all kinds of different styles. I mean, more so because it's a bit easy. I, I feel as though it's a bit easier to innovate um, now than it would have been brewing in the 1800s. But it's interesting to see that that was still the situation then. So that new blonde beer, which was the Munich Helles, was heartedly accepted by most, but it was viewed by some of the old guard as a surrender of esteemed tradition. Bavarian brewers disagreed whether this was an affront to their proud heritage or a necessary commercial concession to trends and modernization and, more importantly, commercial viability. So, again, you have this long Bavarian tradition, and now you have this new beer that kind of breaks those coming along, and some people are going to be mad, and some people are just going to say, hey, you know what, we kind of need to do this because we, we need to have beer that keeps our region like known and commercially viable. Well, I mean, I think that's the whole point of, yes, beer today, but before that even, like, we went into the history of the Grisette, right? And and the reason why that was created, and it was to be able to sell more beer to more people. And that's going to always be the case, right? So when it's more commercially viable, uh, it it sets the brewers up to be more successful. I, I, I don't, I mean, yes, it's a craft, um, but they they were definitely looking to make money, right? Yes, this is true. And wisely, the old timers eventually acquiesced and brewers throughout Germany began adding Helles to their repertoire. Markedly different than Pilsner, it was maltier and less hop forward, features favored by Bavarians. Helles is the Bavarian answer to the plain, uncomplicated, flavorful and carefully crafted beers consumed on a regular basis by the masses. Beers such as this rely on a simple recipe made with the highest quality ingredients and craftsmanship. German Pilsner malt and noble hop variety are all that is needed to produce the unpretentious Helles Wort. The subtle underlying malt sweetness and delicate grain notes are characteristics of the malt itself and provide enough depth uh, for a beer of simplicity. This is complemented by a soft medium body and mouthfeel derived from the protein rich nature of the malt and the mashing skill of the brewer. And though slightly tilted towards the malt, Helles is a very well-balanced beer. It offers the spicy herbal aroma of German hops at restrained levels and enough bitterness in the finish to dry the palate. The clean finish is, of course, a product of generations of carefully selected bottom-fermented yeast and that whole full lagering. Most run about 48 to 5.2% ABV, but those in the range of 55 to 5.9% can also be found. These stronger versions made alongside regular Helles are often brewed as a special or, you know, festival beer. In fact, some beers presented at the Munich Oktoberfest are deep golden and not the amber hue that you would expect from, you know, an export in Marzen. Most true beer lovers need not be reminded that there is plenty to appreciate in elegant simplicity, easy drinkability, and sublime refinement. Helles was the final frontier for the brewers of Bavaria, the polished consummation of centuries of brewing, standing proudly among the great beers of the world. Bohemian Pilsners may be more copied, but Helles remains a Munich original. Now this is the part of the podcast where I go through and look look back on all of the uh, Helles-style lagers that I've had before. And, uh, of course, the majority of them, for me, are going to be domestic ones, right? They're going to be your four noses out of um, Colorado, kind of the Denver area. It's going to be your Chapman Crafted Beer. 
uh, Abnormal. There is one out here that I've had uh, from Edward Teach Brewing. Uh, but my first Hellas Lager was actually the Long, Longfin Lager from Ballast Point Brewing Company. And that was back in 2013. So it's been a while uh, since I have had one of these. I mean, I had one uh, recently over at Edward Teach. But otherwise, you know, only uh, 13 of these total in my whole untapped career. So not really as many as I think I would like to try. I uh, The lager, lager style in general is one that I, I think is um, one I'd like to dip my toe into a little bit more often as it's easier drinking. It can have sort of these like um, herbal, spicy, and, and like very subtle hop characteristics, but can be extremely complex. Um, and so I'm excited to try more of these. I've actually had the long fin as well. That was um, a while back uh, in October of 2015. So it looks like I've, I've only had about five uh, Hellas Lagers. One is actually the long fin that you mentioned. Um, I did have that from Ballast Point back in 2015. Um, I have one in here from Spotten, which was an import. And also uh, the... Um, Wine Stefaner Original, which I didn't realize was considered a Hellas Lager, which is a very popular, um, very old, very traditional um, beer from Wine Stefaner. If you want to uh, read this article, share it with friends, or you know, just see uh, all the details or examples that All About Beer talks about, I will be sure to include the link in the show notes. So stop by and you can get that there. Want to show off your love of Untapped? Check out our online store and pick up Untapped branded glassware, shirts, sweatshirts, hats, and more. Go to store.untapped.com and enter the coupon code PODCAST. At checkout, you'll get 20% off all orders. That's store.untapped.com, coupon code PODCAST. You'll get 20% off. It's that time again. We're going to look at some interesting beer articles that we found this week. Our first article is coming from brewbound.com. I know you're pretty excited about this one. We had to carry this over from last week when we were running along. Pizza Hut expands beer delivery to nearly 300 stores ahead of Super Bowl. All right. Now, see, mm, is Pizza Hut the one that was doing that thing where you can kind of stand in the middle of nowhere and they'll deliver pizza to you? Like the that you can stand in a park and pizza can d- get delivered to you. Were, were they doing drone pizza delivery? I don't know. I don't think it was drone. I don't think it was drone pizza delivery. I think it was like a, there's this pizza spot. You can stop here and a, a like a driver will show up to your you know barbecue at a park and drop off pizza. Interesting. No, I don't. I didn't hear about that, but it wouldn't surprise me. That was one thing that I did notice. Uh, like Domino's and Pizza Hut, not the mass market um, pizza places, they actually really are taking um, innovation to a new level. And some of it's pretty dang silly. But it's interesting to see this. This is an industry that is taking technology and really just like putting it to either good or fun uses. I saw a commercial the other day. I think it was Domino's, but it's like the family pizza alarm to let your family know when the pizza gets there. And I don't know if it was legit or not. I haven't checked on this, but basically it was like (laughs) the dad was at home and he hit a button on his phone and then the rest of the family's phone showed an alert, like pizza's here and they like took off for whatever they were doing. And all I could think was like, that's brilliant. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I've also seen, uh, like dedicated smart car sized, uh, vehicles that have pizza ovens in the back to, 
I don't think they actually cook them, but I at least think they keep them warm uh, while they're in the back of the car and to their destination. So, yeah, definitely like the the pizza delivery industry. If you want to say that there's there's a lot of innovation happening, uh, I I guess I guess that's all right. I mean, it's like you said, is it a gimmick or is it real? It's kind of hard to tell sometimes. People filling potholes. I mean, it's there's all sorts of stuff. Oh going yeah, on I forgot about the, that too. in the pizza industry. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, this one it's a little more uh, in the realm of what we like to talk about. More than a year after launching beer deliveries throughout Phoenix, Arizona, Pizza Hut Today announced plans to expand the service into 1,000 stores by mid-2019. The national pizza chain owned by Yum! Brands, which I believe they also own uh, Taco Bell, which would explain why there are the Pizza Hut-Taco Bell combos. Mm-hmm. I, I've actually been to a um, Taco Bell and KFC combo before. Which has got to be another Yum! brand, right? It's It, it has to be. I used to go there with uh, my old roommate, and he'd get all the KFC, and I'd get all the Taco Bell, and it was super yep. funny. Basically, they said it would expand its beer delivery service to five new states, including Florida, Iowa, Nebraska, North Carolina, and Ohio by mid-January. The company also plans to offer beer deliveries from more restaurant locations in Arizona as well as California, where it launched the service last May. In a press release, Pizza Hut called the expansion of its beer delivery program, which will be offered at 281 stores this month, a brand priority. It's good to see all these places really jumping on the beer bandwagon, finally. Mm-hmm. Yep. They said here, uh, we are proud to be pioneers of beer delivery. I can't say that you guys actually are. And are well poised to take on more markets in this coming year. Pizza Hut Chief Brand Officer uh, Marion Radley said via the release. Now, you got to think, though, at the reach of Pizza Hut, right? I mean, the likelihood that you would pick up a one liter of or a, a two liter of soda from two liter of cola. Yeah, from the uh, from the Pizza Hut when you order it, it's probably pretty likely if you're doing things like an office party or whatever. Um, or a meeting or beer, maybe less likely. Beer definitely seems more like a for dinner or for the evening or for a party or for something, some sort of gathering that is not work related. So uh, it, it's going to likely be like families and I don't know, again, like parties That is kind of all I can really think of. Super Bowl parties, right? That's the whole impetus for this, right? Yes, this this is uh, let's get this out there before the Super Bowl. So Pizza Hut's initial slate of beers available for delivery are produced by three major beer companies. Now, here's here's the downside for a lot of our listeners. Amheuser-Busch, InBev, uh, Bud Light, Budweiser, Bush Light, Four Peaks Kilt Lifter, Michelob Ultra, Shock Top, and Stella Trois. They've also got Miller Coors with Blue Moon, Coors Light, Miller Light, Miller High Life, and Constellation Brands, Corona Extra. So um, unfortunately, the initial offerings are coming from the big beer brands, but to that point, this is a very big chain, and they need a very big amount of massively available beer. So I get it. The big corporations tend to partner up because of the availability and probably the price point. So I get why you start there. Ideally, we'll see them expand more. And they say basically here that the beers we're select uh, the beers we've selected are among the most popular in the United States. Um, says the spokesperson, we didn't want to handcuff our customers to one or two beer selections because we know they are we know they like variety, and the list of offerings achieves that. And it does. I mean, it it it's it's kind of a variety. 
you've got your lagers, you've got your wheat beers, you've got your Mexican lagers. Okay, fair. Uh, but they they do say here in the article that that variety, however, does not include offerings from independently owned breweries. Pizza Hut um, spokesperson explained that the first phase of the rollout is focused on popular mainstream offerings and the company would, quote unquote, evaluate craft beer opportunities in the future. So that said, fingers crossed that eventually we'll get some better offerings in there. Yeah, or 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 at least sub brands of those, right? Somewhere you'll you'll get at least uh, craft styles, if you would, uh, things like IPAs and you know uh, other offerings from big beer brands like that. Eventually, yeah, and they'll probably work in that portfolio just because, like I said, as corporations go, they're going to work together because you got to get those the, get that yum brand, get the big big dogs in with the big dogs, right? Exactly. And hopefully as they set up, you know, the the line and the way of facilitating all of this and getting the beer in and getting it out, ideally we'll find a way to work in more local regional brands because that's what we all like. Do you have a go-to beer or beer style for pizza? I I don't have a go-to. Usually, I mean, I, I just would say IPA or pale ale because that's usually what I drink. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have I think I if I'm having like a pepperoni pizza, I'm going to go IPA to try and like balance the spiciness and sort of the uh, very oily character of the pizza. If pizza can have character of any sort. Um, if it's anything lighter, like a Neapolitan style, I want to go Kolsch or lager, probably yeah. something something more bready and doughy that complements the pizza rather than clashes with it and and tries to cut it right. Yeah, this is true. A nice light Kolsch um, with a really like nice easy pizza. Yeah, I mean even 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 a Hellas Lager that wouldn't be that bad with it. No, not at all. That's a good combo right there. Sounds Hellas good. Our next article comes from Thrillist.com. One of America's best craft breweries is making boozy Lacroix. Not actually, right? Not actually. That's not that that can't be. They're not they're not adding alcohol to Lacroix, but I okay. mean, we've seen we've seen a surgeons here in a certain new style of alcoholic beverage, and some of our craft beer brethren are jumping on that. So jumping into this article now, uh, based on extremely anecdotal evidence, the amount of Lacroix consumed by the average American office worker per day is three cans. Now I like that that is completely a joke, but also completely accurate because I love bubbly water. Yeah, and maybe below average for me uh, on a on a bad day like that. Mm, mm, three cans is being a little bit generous. I go through way too much aluminum. <laughs> yeah, that's that's also a very valid point there. People can't get enough of those bubbly, sugar-free flavors. Plus, they love having an excuse to say the word pamplemousse. <laughs> and admittedly, I do, which for those of you is grapefruit flavored LaCroix. But I, I, mm-hmm. I have a I have a case of that in the fridge. And I just every time I'm like, I need some more pamplemousse. It's, pamplemousse. It's, it's pretty good. But one thing I think we all know is they're seriously lacking alcohol. Now, the country's biggest booze makers are hoping that when those same office workers return home at night, they reach for a LaCroix like can of alcohol, boozy, sparkling water. The big boys in the alcoholic sparkling water space include Amheuser-Busch, which they've got their Spike Seltzer. Miller Coors has their Henry Hard Sparkling Water and White Claw, which is interesting because they have the Henry, 
the uh, the hard um i believe uh mike's heart is under miller cores as well but anyway mm-hmm. it's funny to see them just basically strip out the lemon and give you boozy water yeah and there yeah exactly which is uh, here also produced by the same folks who do mike's hard lemonade uh, and now the craft beer world is entering the arena courtesy of Wild Basin, which is a new boozy, bubbly water from the Titans at Oscar Blues. Mm, and a part of, I guess, the canarchy. I believe they are, yes. Now the question is, can the brewery behind big beers like the beloved Barrel Age 1050 also make a solid can of boozy soda? Well, Thrillist got their hands on all four flavors, which are classic lime, cucumber peach, Melon basil and lemon agave hibiscus. Okay, all right. Uh, sign me up probably for all of them. Cucumber peach may be off putting depending on what that ends up tasting like. It it can be kind of like walking into a be- uh, Bath and Body Works uh, location, which is not great. Yes, but the anything with hibiscus. I just had a uh, a Gruet style ale and that had hibiscus in it. That was fantastic. Yeah, they they go on to give you a little review of each of these flavors in the article. So if you want to read those reviews, you can head over to the show notes and hit the link. But they do say, you know, what is this stuff anyway? It's not quite beer, but it is produced in a similar fashion. Instead of fermenting malted barley to make beer, Wild Basin is made by fermenting cane sugar. So here's the breakdown per can. It is 5% ABV, it is 100 calories, which is a little less than a can of Bud Light, as one gram of carbs and zero grams of sugar. So I, I, I don't know if that ends up. So it is using fermented cane sugar, but it ends up being no grams of sugar, but maybe with a little bit of, of sweet character. I'd be very interested in how these end up being palatable and balanced tasting rather than just like, you know, simply like a super, super dry LaCroix. Well, it seems as though we might have to get our hands on this and do yeah. a little bit of an off show. Yes, yes. Well, and we actually recently uh, on November 26th modified our beverage guidelines to actually support these going forward. So hard seltzers are one beverage type because they are fermented with sugar. As long as they are alcoholic, they are allowed on untapped. So truly spiked seltzer is one of the examples that we give. And some of the the ones that uh, Tim was talking about are also allowed on untapped. So try and go find those, I guess, and and see how many folks have, have been drinking them. And I and I think um, this is something we're going to see more of. You know, the low-cal game, the low-carb game uh, is is afoot, and, and folks are trying to get into the craft brewed version of that now it is currently only available in colorado and north carolina but the distribution will expand to the rest of the country soon we'll see yeah i'd love to see that basically side by side an oscar blues can uh of of you know good night uh if you would in a total wine or something you know eventually mm. i think that'll be pretty cool yes that it's and you like you said we've we've had so many articles about the um you know, low alcohol, no alcohol, less carbs. It's just really become um, a big space and something that a lot of um, drinkers are really conscientious about now. They, I think, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but um, Dogfish had just released the other day um, a new beer, like their super low-calorie, low-carb mm-hmm. beer as well. So it, when you start seeing places like that kind of jumping in on the game, like, you know, it's a direction that brewers are going to eventually start going. Yep. We'll see more about it this year, likely. Now, our next article, it's coming from the Wall Street Journal. And before we get into this, um, we are purely talking about this subject on the sense of how it affects the beer industry. And I thought it was very interesting. And we are going to 
not go into politics on this because that's that's not what we're about. We're about the beer and the interesting thing there. So this article is why the beer stops flowing when the government shuts down. So as people here in the United States know, I don't know by the time, let's hope is resolved by the time this uh, podcast comes out. But our federal government is currently in a shutdown, which means that there are many federal workers who are not currently working because they are not getting paid because there's no budget for the federal government. Uh, there's currently no end in sight, and I believe we're at about 24 days so far. Yeah, yeah. Long, anyway. the, long, the longest ever is, is the yes. point. Yeah, Yes, it's the longest that we've ever had in the history of our country, um, et cetera, et cetera. Politics aside, the federal government shutdown is turning off the tap for many craft brewers. Now, I read this article and I just none of this really I didn't it didn't cross my mind. You know, for me, I, we have a love. My wife and I have a love of the national parks and the shutdown means that there are no rangers, which means that the national parks are getting trashed. Um, the shutdown means that the TSA doesn't get paid so that there's delays at airports potentially. So there's all these things, these aspects, all these different places um, that are wings of the federal government that you you see and you think like, man, OK, I see how the effects are there. But to me, I didn't even this one didn't even cross my mind, which I thought was really interesting. So the makers of beers from Samuel Adams, Sierra Nevada, say they are sitting on suds. They can't bottle and sell or holding off on production of new beers because they don't have federal approval for some of their new labels or formulas. Across the beer industry, we are talking about tens of millions of dollars of sales that are being lost because brewers can't get products to market, um, estimated Boston Beer Company founder Jim Koch, uh, whose company makes Sam Adams beers. That number goes up every day the shutdown continues. Now, the partial government shutdown has halted many activities of the Treasury Department's Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, which plays a key role in overseeing alcoholic beverages. The TTB approves new labels and formulas. It also signs off, signs off on startups and expansions and acquisitions. So now while the Bureau handles approval for virtually all types of alcohol, its incapacitation has been particularly painful for craft brewers because they rely heavily on frequent releases to drive sales. So if you stop and you think about it, how many breweries do you know have a can release every week? A lot of them, honestly. <laughs> how many breweries out there are currently brewing for, say, their spring or summer seasonals? All of these places, they, they, they're either they started brewing and cannot sell and are sitting on, potentially have to dump or just can't brew at all because they can't get approval from the government. That I didn't think about that. That's mind-boggling to me. Yeah, I think one of the probably um, most popular ways that this has hit the public eye is through a video from Stephen Colbert, which was just a multitude of beer puns about the government shutdown and with regards to the fact that these brewers cannot get these things approved while the government shut down. But by using basically uh, beer puns on cans and bottles and things like that in a monologue format. We'll put it in the show notes. I highly recommend if you're into that kind of thing, go check it out. It's it's a uh, it's a pretty funny, pretty funny video. Even even if the um, even when the shutdown ends, brewers say that they're going to face potentially several months of backlog in approval requests. So even if this ends, they're still going to be hit pretty hard. Now, a Treasury spokesman said that uh, estimates of the impact of the shutdown on issued labels, formula approvals, and permits isn't currently available. And approval times post-shutdown will depend on a range of factors. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. 
Normally, it takes less than a week to approve new labels for beer and other malt beverages, according to government statistics. Now, as examples of, you know, breweries that are really kind of getting hit here, Prairie Artisan Ales, which is out of Oklahoma, is holding on to about $500,000 worth of O-Fudge, which is a new chocolate stout made with brownies, according to the owner, Zach Pritchard. The brewer, which uh, has about 75 employees, they were actually expecting O-Fudge and two other releases to provide about 60% of their first quarter revenue. Wow. That's that's incredible. Yeah. And, uh, and again, that's the whole like quick turnaround, fast releases. And Prairie, I mean, Prairie is a pretty hot brand still. Right. And now, you know, that without 60% of their first quarter revenue, that's going to that's going to hit really hard. It, and it's going to cascade down to those 75 employees and then it'll cascade down over, you know, it's, it, it, it's going to impact way more than than you might expect. Another example here is that Boston Beer can't move forward with plans to update the recipes for its Sam Adams Summer Ale, like we're talking about with kind of like this, the seasonal releases. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. They actually have a new combination of citrus fruit purees and peels, uh, and they can't roll out their new um, a new beer that they're actually making with Himalayan sea salt. It, it's also waiting label approval for dozens of new beers, and some experimental beers can't move out of their tanks because the company doesn't have approval to put labels on their kegs. Wow. Another example that is also in this article I thought was good because we're we're we know about Sierra Nevada. We've been covering them quite a bit lately. But Sierra Nevada Brewing, they actually have a team of employees known as Innovation Brewers, who they produce about 150 beers a year that are mostly sold in its restaurants and at special events. They say here that much of that type of R and D is at a standstill," said Sarah Santana, the brewer's uh, legal, regulatory, and compliance manager. The company has more than a dozen labels pending and hasn't been able to confirm a date for a shipment to to China because it can't get regulatory approval. Wow, that's that's incredible, especially even in R&D. Like I I can understand the stuff that's like, "Hey, we're in production, like we're ready to go. We had these we had these ready to go and you guys blindsided us with with this shutdown and that we can't do anything." But the fact that R&D would also be at a standstill where you're just trying to figure things out and you're you're trying to get stuff that works so that you can start shipping it out. That, that's that's a that's a huge impact. And with more than 7,000 craft brewers in the United States now, that's a lot of breweries and a lot of people that are and these are people that aren't even, you know, employed by the government that are being impacted by this entire thing. I'm really surprised actually uh Coming into this article, one, I didn't know that this existed. I didn't know this was part of the process of needing to make uh, a beer happen, right? Putting a beer on a shelf. I know it has to have a label and that needs to get approved, but um, especially for things like kegs, like that's every time something gets distributed, it needs to have that label on it. I don't know how they haven't run into a bottleneck before where like there is just there's 7,000 craft breweries. All of this is happening at once. And everything is funneling to the government to get the labels uh, created for them. That's a that's a lot. That's a lot of effort that needs to be put in. And there's probably a lot of folks that are involved who are not getting paid as well at the same time. So for sure, I, I think it's it's probably better that way where they're not doing the work for free. I, I think that's probably not the way to go about it. I, I think it's probably better in that way that aside it's detrimental to the entire craft brewing industry for it to continue this way and it's 
unfortunate to see. I don't know what's going to happen. That's so much waste. And it's so, oh, I just, I'm so worried <laughs> about that, that sweet, sweet liquid going down the drain. Yes, this is true. Uh, so it does say that some companies, they're, they're trying workarounds. Um, Jester King Brewery, which is in Austin, is redirecting roughly five new beers, including its Spawn, uh, Spawn Musket. I'm going to guess that's made with musket grape stuff um, to buyers in Texas because in-state sales don't require federal label approval. So that's good to know. Okay. So they're saying it it really hasn't cost them much yet, but obviously that shrinks their market because they can only sell in-state with, you know, five brand new beers. Sure. Um, And there obviously there are breweries that are just starting up um, that, you know, they need their licensing and they need all their permits and everything and they can't get those. So, there's another brewery here from Fair Isle. Uh, they're basically going to be sitting on empty tanks in an empty facility waiting because they can't get started. And uh, another example, again, with Boston Beer Company is unlike those that are just sitting on an empty facility, they actually have tanks full of beer that they started brewing in November, December that they literally might have to dump because they just if it sits too long, then it's not going to be good. It's not going to be up to the quality standards. It won't be fresh anymore. Yeah. Yeah. There's just it's just it's really sad to see how how much this really affects so many different levels of our country. Um, and I, I don't, without, I don't know what, I don't have much more to say without getting too deep into, into the politics of it. But it's just, it, I, I found this very interesting and also a bit sad to see how something like this, that we don't necessarily think could affect the beers that we drink actually directly affects it in so many ways you can read more uh from that article over in the wall street journal and you can also check out the youtube video i talked about over at our show notes it's available at podcast.untapped.com if you've got any questions for us or you've got feedback again we've got a new facebook group and an instagram set up that is at drinking socially on instagram and that is facebook.com slash drinking socially probably Maybe. Yes, that's correct. And then also we have Untapped Podcast on Twitter as well if you want to hit us up there. So go give us a follow. A little uh, throwing you off a little bit, but we just want to make sure that we have a better visibility on our listeners and uh, that we can actually you know pick you out of the noise of our other main social channels. Until next week. Cheers. Cheers.